Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Amara. Before we get to today's show, I want to take a moment to honor Cecilia Gentile, a powerful and critical voice in our community and in the fight for the human rights and dignity of everyone. A woman who gifted us with her performance artistry and her vision. A light in this dark world that we lost too soon. Cecilia was everywhere where there was need. An advocate for trans liberation, undocumented migrants and sex workers, an award-winning author, an actress performing a one-woman show who also made a regular appearance in the groundbreaking series Pose. Her contributions are too many to name here, but include being the policy director at a queer health and HIV service organization called GMHC. She assembled a coalition to end the criminalization of sex work in New York State called DCRIMNY, and successfully took on the Trump administration's anti-trans healthcare rules, guaranteeing continued access for trans people across the United States. And these accomplishments barely scratched the surface of what she did and who she touched. On a personal note, I can't remember the first time I met Cecilia, nor the first time I ever heard her name. Perhaps it's because she's been an ever-present, powerful force in our community for so long that it's hard to imagine any time without her. But even though I can't remember the first time I met her, what I do know is that she was always and shall remain unforgettable. Her laugh, wit, intelligence, sexiness, bodiness, and sheer grit were all outsized. No matter what room she was in nor who was in it, Cecilia stood out for all of the right reasons. She remains one of the shrewdest people I know. Cecilia got so much done on behalf of trans people because she knew where power lay, how to sell to it, and how to get it to do what she wanted. To be honest, in a less transphobic society, Cecilia would have been an Emmy award-winning actress and governor of a state. Cecilia clearly had the range to do so. That's why it's hard, both for me and the community, to fathom life without her. But she would expect nothing less of us. That's because she knew that the creation of a better world was larger than one person. Her passing, though, already has lessons for us. The universal tributes she's received shows the importance of living a life that no matter when you go, no matter how long or how short, that all of those left behind believe that it was too fleeting. By that measure, Cecilia's life of grace and devotion is the very definition of a life well lived.
Hey fam, it's me, Amara Jones. Welcome to the Trans Lash Podcast, a show where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, this month is Black History Month. February is the time when we look at and unpack all things African-American, from the cultural to the historical, to areas like entertainment and science, you name it. I don't know why Black History Month can't be every month, like all of the other months that we have. Why can't we have Asian history every month? But at least a month is more than my mom got. She only got a week to look at and celebrate Black history. Undoubtedly, though, the history of African Americans in the United States cannot be understood without looking at religion. Religion that was meant to impress and to reinforce the idea of Black servitude and which also contributed to Black liberation. So what does it mean to be Black and trans within the context of this complicated history and within a religious teaching that is often patriarchal, which teaches gender essentialism, and which says that no matter who you are on the inside, you have to repress it in service to God. So that's why I'm thrilled today to be having these complex conversations. First up is Reverend Lewis Mitchell, who shares how he went from swearing off organized religion to finding himself in the midst of a ministry leading a church. I'm not the answer man. I don't know everything. I'm as prone to error as anybody else. And I want to be clear about that, especially as a pastor. I apologize when I'm wrong. Next, I'll talk with minister, healer, and community leader, Reverend Valerie Spencer, about her own spiritual journey. I also expose people to not just the joys that I have found by being a woman of faith, but also the struggles that me and God have had, right? That I've had with God, the fist fights that we have had, the divorce that almost became final. And just a heads up, I recorded my interview with Reverend Spencer in a different space than usual, so you might notice that I sound a little different. But before we get to these enriching conversations, let's start out as always with some trans joy. There's an undeniably painful history in the treatment of Black and trans people within some organized religion. But there is an equally deep tradition of finding love, healing, and belonging through faith as well. J. Mace III is a Black, trans, and queer poet and educator whose powerful work continues this long tradition. He is the co-editor of the Lambda Award-winning Black Trans Prayer Book alongside Lady Dane Figueroa Aditi, who was featured in our Trans Theater During the Holidays episode late last year. As a Sundance Fellow, Jay Mace is adapting this interfaith collection of stories, poems, prayer, and spells into a documentary film. Beyond the Black Trans Prayer Book, he has worked with schools and faith communities across the world on LGBTQ and racial justice issues and published his writing in outlets like The Huffington Post and The Root. Here's Jay Mace III to tell us more about the liberation he's witnessed through his interfaith work. I've had the fortune and the blessing to work with so many different types of religious and spiritual traditions. And consistently, the one thing that I hear 
is that um, we are more than our physical body. And so when I think about the experience of being a trans person, that someone can give you a name for your body and you say no, that someone can give you a name for your, yourself and you can say no, that someone can give you a name for a body part and you just say no, and you can say, actually, I can see myself beyond what you have given to me. I think one of the biggest places I have a black trans and queer joy is sitting with a group of black trans people across different traditions, across um, Lukumi, Ifa, Buddhism, like Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and being able to see their shared stories and realities about how I think that our very experiences as black trans people is a spiritual experience, period. That is magic. That is literal magic that happens every single day. James the Third, you are trans joy. We're in for a fascinating conversation with minister, teacher, and self-described intentional man, Reverend Lewis Mitchell. Reverend Mitchell has been a committed and compassionate advocate and spiritual leader for many years. He is the co-founder and former executive director of TransFaith, a national multi-tradition organization that works to support trans-spiritual and cultural workers. But that isn't the only organization that Reverend Mitchell has helped get off the ground. He's also a founding member of Trans Saints, the Transgender People of Colors Coalition, Recovering the Promise Ministries, and the Oshun Women's Drop-In Center in San Francisco. And his list of accomplishments doesn't stop there. Reverend Mitchell was the first out trans board member of the National LGBTQ Task Force. He has also been in recovery and an advocate for mental health and healing for many decades. Unsurprisingly, Reverend Mitchell's resume is packed with honors and distinctions. So rather than list them all, I'll just say that the Black Trans Advocacy Coalition now awards an annual Lewis Mitchell Foundation Award for Empowerment to other individuals committed to improving the lives of trans people because of the powerful legacy that this man has already created. He currently serves as the senior pastor of Rincon United Church of Christ in Tucson, Arizona, Reverend Mitchell, thank you so much for joining me. It is absolutely my pleasure. One of the conversations that's gripping America right now is the belief by some that there is a collision between trans rights and religion, specifically in your faith tradition of Christianity. And that conversation is now spilling into Black churches and Black community in really powerful ways. That said, you, as an example, provide an answer that there doesn't have to be a contradiction between these two things, that perhaps this is a falsehood or a false dichotomy. So I am wondering for you, as a longstanding faith practitioner and leader, how the table that you're seeing before you strikes you with regards to what you're seeing with the collision of race and religion and human rights and politics right now? First of all, I'm happy that the discussions are happening. Uh, they're long, long, long overdue. I just recently reread a book by Peter Gomes called The Good Book that addresses all the ways that biblically it's been errant teachings and different ways of thinking about context that have created a lot of these issues. I was not planning to go into ministry. That wasn't my goal in life. I was surprised as anybody. 
and uh, was like, oh God, really? Did you like run out of people? Why me? But what I realized is that the intersections of my life bring together an open table for people who have frequently been misused, abused, and run out of churches and offer an opportunity for welcome to study the Bible and the faith with openness and scrutiny. And so I think part of the challenge that has been for women, for varying cultures, Native Americans, the enslaved and descendants of the enslaved, same gender-loving people, and people of trans experience, has been very narrow and sometimes errant discussions of biblical texts under which hide ignorance and bigotry. So the thing that makes that possible is to put some light on it, have some discussions about it, to realize that people are people and we should know each other. We're not, none of us are perfect. So I love that, that, this, that those conversations are happening. And I want to give great credit to Bishop Yvette Flunder, Bishop Tanya Rawls, the late Archbishop Carl Bean, and Reverend Troy Perry for leading this uh, decades ago and preparing communities to have these conversations with one another and with mainstream traditions. What do you think, though, of conversations within Black churches that are increasingly, though, inspired not by the type of conversation that you're saying has been teed up for decades, which is of a true unpacking and exploration of this, but those that that mimic ones that are about demonization by using Christianity and the way that that has really moved to the fore of our political conversation, you know, this wrapping up of interpretation of what people say Christianity says about trans people with the attacks on trans people. And now that filtering in various places and mega churches, even in black communities that are kind of copying what's happening in the, in the wider culture. I'm just wondering what you think about that part of the conversation that's outside of what you are talking about, these earnest unpackings. Two things, really. Ignorance and arrogance are not decidedly secular positions. So when you are in mostly patriarchal church leadership, historically in the black church, has been largely patriarchal and quite a bit sexist. And those discussions are happening as well. When you are afraid of losing your power, when you are afraid of sharing your power, when you're afraid of having your authority questioned and need to hide that authority under the cloak of bad biblical interpretation, that's where you're going to go. But I think the question I have for them is, how are you now aligned with these people who for your entire life and the life of your ancestors have not cared anything about you, have not seen you as human, and now you are in fact using the tools of the master. I just need you to sit and reflect on that. They may never do it. That's the truth. They may never do it. They may die ignorant, arrogant, and honorary. And that's okay. That's between them and God. My concern is that people don't have to kill themselves and don't have to stay in the pews and keep pouring money into the tithes of ministry that will not see them as whole, human, and worthy of God's love. I am more in favor of emancipation for people who are stuck in those places than I am about changing the minds of people who are decidedly stuck and willfully ignorant. Because of your leadership in the community, you, of course, are around, have been around, and will continue to be around 
you know, countless Black trans people and others in our community who grew up in households or in churches where they are not allowed to be themselves and they bear the scars and the pain of that. And as you just alluded to, for some people that drives them to self-harm. And I am wondering what you offer them as an antidote to their own experience that can affirm them as people and as those who can be trans and still have faith. I grew up in a church much like that as well. And I don't offer an antidote. What I do offer is a place for them to be pissed off and to be hurt and to blame God for what the people of God have done and said. Mm. That is fine with me. Bring it. I understand. I'm not trying to make anybody return to the scene of the crime. I will encourage them to find a faith or spirit practice that works for them, that feels freeing, that feels validating. If you never go to another Christian church or Muslim church or Jehovah's Witness church again, fine with me. But just know that whatever it is that creates, created you with love and with intention, you're not a mistake. And people can feel however they want about that. But trust that you were made and designed with great intention and great love. So, I mean, there I have people that show up at my church right now who are um, anti-church. Um, I've got a couple of atheists that worship with us frequently, and they're able to do that because I'm not trying to change their minds. We have two things going on here. We have a Christian church that seeks to wrestle with the text and wrestle with how to use the text in the present. We also have a community of service, love, and faith that is welcoming of everybody. So if you don't believe in what we believe, skip the Lord's Prayer. Don't do communion. But you're welcome to serve food with us. You're welcome to go to lunch with us. You're still going to be greeted, given a cup of coffee and some hugs. I believe that that is what the walk of Christ has situated church to do. We've gotten so far away from who was Jesus, what did Jesus do, what did Jesus say reportedly by the things that we have, have cobbled together and called the Bible, And we've made it more about empire and conquest and doctrine than we have about love, contact, and connection, and service. So again, I don't have any antidotes for anyone who has suffered from church harm. Um, They are welcome to sit across my desk in my office or come to church or come to church online and vent, rant, rave, cuss, scream, whatever they need to do. I prefer they do that in my office rather than in the service, but do what you do because Having a place to express pain, and for us on our side of of the aisle, having a place to express culpability, regret, and to make amends is important. I make amends for being a part of a system that is not broken. It is just as messed up as it's been designed to be. It's an awkward place to be, to be in a system that has done so much harm, and I can't redeem the Christian church. I cannot. There's too much water under the bridge, too much harm, too much denial about the harm we've caused and the harm we are still causing. What I can try to do is sit still and say, you're right. That was fucked up. We shouldn't have done that. And I'm sorry. What can I do to help today? I can't go back and undo what your granddaddy did or your mama or the deaconess board. But I can say, you're welcome to join us uh, when we have Jambalaya on the 13th. You don't even have to come to church. You can come make sandwiches on a Saturday and still be a part of us and never come to a Sunday service. This is a community 
that you're invited to be a part of if you'd like. What do you think atheists get out of this interaction that you just mentioned? I mean, first of all, what you described is a radical approach, but it shouldn't be radical because, as you said, the way in which you are modeling love um, and openness is very much in line with all of the stories of Christ, or many of the stories of Christ in the New Testament, of course. But for atheists, what do you think they're getting out of being in church and being in fellowship and these other things? Well, the one that speaks most directly with me, who I adore, she gets to be in a place where there are like-minded people around service and love. And occasionally we have the post-sermon debate about what I said, and that, you know, she's like, I don't believe any of that stuff. I'm like, okay, well, was there anything in there that you found useful or anything in there that you found hurtful? And we'll have that discussion. And that's it. I don't need her to change her opinion or change her mind. Uh, she often comes with her father, who is a long-term member here. We've gone to lunch. We've broken bread. She's a part of a, an active atheist association here in Tucson. And I said, you know, I would love to come to one of your meetings, not to proselytize or evangelize, but just get to know people who are doing great service work in Tucson. And she said, yeah, you're welcome. I said, I'm not wearing a cross or a collar or any of that thing. I just want to sit and break bread with other people doing the work. And I've said this before, and I will continue saying it probably for the rest of my life. I would rather sit with a loving atheist than a hateful Christian any day of the week. You mentioned that there was a time in your life when you did not believe that you were called to this work. Can you talk about your own experience with religion and how it led you to think that where you are now is where you would have never ended up? That is So I was raised in the Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, and the people that I was raised worshiping with were mostly, you know, people who came from various places in the South to Los Angeles. So it wasn't Southern Baptist. It was like kind of bougie Southern Baptist light, if that makes any sense to you. <laughs> and I was raised in the church and I loved the pageantry. I loved the sense of community. And as I grew older, I was also hurt by the hypocrisy and by the humanity that happened in the church that was denied and so people were doing all the things that people do, in church, not in church, whatever. But they were pretending to be much holier than they were, and it was draped in this self-righteousness, which I understood in a world that gave them no place to be whole, holy, human, awesome, amazing, gifted, and talented, because they were going to be a boy till they were 70. They were mammy. They, they cleaned people's houses. The black church was one of the only places where Black adults could have any standing, any authority, any sense of pride in their knowledge and their passion and their purpose. I understood that, and I still needed to leave. As I came into myself as being someone who was attracted to girls and not boys, and I called myself a lesbian at that time because I didn't know what else to call myself, I couldn't do, I'm partying with the saints on Saturday night, and we're all drinking scotch and doing whatever, and on Sunday, I'm the only one going to hell because nobody else is still gay. I, I was confused by that. And I thought, okay, I, I don't get the hypocrisy and I, I just can't do it. So the moment I was able to leave church, I did. And I had no intention, no plan on ever, ever, ever going back again. That was not my desire. Fast forward a few years, 
I hit bottom with my addiction and my alcoholism, and I wandered into 12-step rooms of recovery, and I was told to find a God of my understanding. So I looked at any God that didn't involve Christianity or organized religion. I chanted for a while. I did a few, you know, nature things and rocks and crystals and all kinds of things, which I loved, and they were valuable and helpful. But there was a yearning in me for the good parts of the church of my upbringing, which I did not think existed, honestly. I went to the Metropolitan Community Churches. They were very welcoming, but I didn't feel them in the same kind of visceral way that I felt in the black church. So it didn't quite scratch the itch. And I was at a political meeting, and I met this woman, Yvette Flunder. There was something about her energy and the way that she addressed the room that I thought, I don't know who she is, but I need to drink from that well, because that's something powerful. And so eventually, after hemming and hawing and dragging my feet, I went to her church, City of Refuge, back when it was on DeBose Triangle. And the most memorable thing for me, my first Sunday going there, I was greeted at the door by a woman named Doris Robinson. She was a tall, beautiful black trans woman. And I thought, if this church will allow this woman to be their front-facing, welcoming image, maybe I can be here. So I got involved with that church, which was a United Church of Christ church, which I had never heard of before. But I still wasn't feeling a call to ministry. I was just happy to find a church where all of me could be there. During the AIDS pandemic, I was often invited to engage with friends and with their families because I was the only person they knew that prayed. So I prayed at a lot of bedsides and I prayed with a lot of family members, not because I felt called to ministry, but because I felt called to care. Moving along, life happened, all the things happened, still not feeling called to ministry. Moved to New England, got involved in a church and felt kind of a I don't know, an itchy, scratchy, what can I do here kind of thing. And I thought, okay, I'm willing to look at ministry, but never church ministry. I will do a jail ministry. I'll do a hospital ministry. Cool. I can do those things. And then through a series of events, I ended up becoming an associate pastor of a church and a co-founder of Recovering the Promise Ministries. And I I wrestled with it a lot. I, I prayed a lot. And I said, God, you know, really, I'm a mess. I'm not going to stop smoking. (laughs) Still cuss every now and again, probably more frequently than most. And, you know, when single, I can be a bit of a hoe. So I'm not sure I'm the guy you want. And in my prayer and meditation and spirit time, the answer that I got was that I was needed because I would go where the self-righteous were too holy to go. I would go where the people needed to know that God loved them. And so my heart said yes. And I just said, okay, send me where you need me to go. And it ended up being church ministry. I call my calling a dragging more than a calling. How appropriate for our community that it was a dragging. (laughs) See what I'm saying? (laughs) Exactly. I I could not have imagined in a million years that I would be in the position I am right now. I was 23 when I got sober. Um, I just wanted to stop being a messy alcoholic and addict. I didn't expect to stay sober you know, for 40 years, that wasn't even my desire. And when understanding this this search, this quest for a higher power, for God, I did not think for a moment it would lead me back to the church, certainly not back to the Christian church, certainly not back to organized religion. But I can tell you that in this moment, 
in this place in my life as a pastor, a solo senior pastor of this church, I have never, ever felt more comfortable and more in the right place in my life. I'm, I'm just awed and, and overcome by gratitude that I get to do this with my life. I'm wondering if you can reflect on something that you mentioned before, which is the role of patriarchy in the church. And one of the things that you've done throughout your life is to work with a lot of trans men in terms of embracing healthy masculinities, right? Rather than ones that are prescribed and, to put it charitably, are not necessarily helpful, (laughs) And so I'm wondering for you being in part of this tradition as it has been historically, that is highly patriarchal. And then you, of course, being a trans man yourself, how have you personally worked to avoid the traps of the masculinity that is prescribed to people? Well, I mean, in order to fight my way through toxic masculinity in my trans identity, I had to first identify that it was there, which I did not want to do. As a womanist and a, a black butch who, I mean, I didn't start medical transition until I was 38 years old. So I spent a lot of time wandering and living and loving in woman's space and woman's skin with an F on my license. And I got to experience what it was like to be on the other side of misogyny and misogynoir and sexism. And that didn't get erased from my memory with the addition of testosterone. Although, early in transition, early in being able to blend into the uh, fabric of manhood, I realized the comfort that I got in community of being a black man. I got deferred to. I was given a role of authority, unearned authority, everywhere. That is narcotic. And I get why people don't want to give it up. It's good. You know, I'm like, okay, can I just do this for like four or five years? This feels great. And the womanist in me is like, no, sir, you may not. And so I surround myself with strong, fearless, maybe not fearless. They're not afraid to put me in my place. Women, black women, black women in art, black women in business, black women in ministry, who I check in with about how I'm doing what I'm doing. And if I have slipped into a pattern of ignoring my own misogyny, my own sexism, my own privilege, because I won't see it when it happens. And I think that's the thing. Like, I don't think I'm going to graduate to a higher plane without people who I trust to have eyes on me and to have hands on me. And I trust these women to call me on my shit. Not because they want to be mean or nasty, but because they love me and they want me to be the best person I can be and the best man I can be in community. Without them, I couldn't address these things. I'm pretty sure of it. I mean, I could try and I might do an okay job, but without their care and without their lens, it would be impossible. So when I think about black male clergy, cis male clergy, they don't have those women in their lives that they're willing to listen to, that they're willing to bow to, to bow to their authority, to bow to their wisdom, to bow to their criticism. I would not be where I am without strong black women, clergy specifically, around me, praying for me, chewing me out, carrying me, advising me, 
calling me up going, let me talk to you for a minute about that thing you said. And I am so willing to learn from them. That is how I become a better pastor, a better man, a better man in community. And that is not just black cis women. I've learned a lot from specifically black trans women who I've been in relationship with where we can actually have some serious conversation about our intersections and the places where our lives don't cross and how to navigate those things. People like Monica Roberts, may she rest in peace. I would not be the man I am without the women in my life. So in that way, I am a possibility model for younger black trans men to say, yeah, we got this cool brotherhood. That is all good. I'm going to need you to get around some women who you're not fucking. Women who you trust to tell you what kind of man you really are. Not the man you think you are. Not the man that we all put on to go out in the world and feel good about ourselves. But the man underneath that. The man that can cry. The man that can listen. The man that can take a criticism and then alchemize that into how we behave in the world. I owe my whole life to black women, my mama, my grandmama, and all the women, all the black women of every origin that have been kind enough to lend me their wisdom. Lastly, I am wondering if you can talk a little bit about this idea of possibility models within the context of church and religion I am wondering if there's been anyone who is black and trans who has ever said anything to you about how your example for them gave them a different idea about their possible relationship with religion. Not something that you have said, as you said, you allow people to be who they can be. But I am I am just thinking and know that in the example that you have provided and the way that that example is celebrated in our, our community, that just you being you has had a big impact. I am weepy with gratitude when I think about it. I have been fortunate enough to have many, many people tell me they saw me somewhere, they heard me somewhere, they saw this documentary or whatever, and they met me someplace, and it got them to thinking about their relationship with divine energy. I'm honored by that. Many of these people have not found themselves in Christianity. Some have, but many have not. But it's allowed them to do studying into Yoruba or into another practice that feeds them. Because the idea was, you get to have relationship with divine energy. As a matter of fact, you are divine energy. So, you know, let me help you find a community that can support you in being who you are and doing the spiritual work you need to do. I've been so fortunate and so blessed to have many people. For, for a lot of people, I was the first uh, grown black trans man they met, and they didn't know I was trans until I outed myself, which I do frequently because other than that, people can't find me if I can be helpful. The other thing that's true is that I, I, I'm accessible. So there are a lot of kind of A-list trans people that you can't reach, right? You know, you don't know how to reach them. You don't have their number because they're doing amazing things. They're in a different level. I'm accessible. You ping me on Facebook, I'll ping you back. You know, let's talk. And so in that way, I've been able to be available to them and to say, I don't have the answer to your question, but I can find you some people that might have more answers than I have. Like, I don't consider myself brilliant and a resource of all resources, but I do know how to be a good conduit. 
I can try to connect you with people that can support you along the path. I also don't have the spoons and the energy in the ways that I did when I was younger to journey with people. So I refer them to people who I trust, not just a name or an an image or some online icon, but people who I trust their brains and I trust their hearts and I trust their spirits to be in integrity with other people. And so that is my job. My job is to connect people with the support to let them live into themselves. And if I'm lucky, they'll tell me how it went, you know, on the other side. If I'm not lucky, I just trust that the divine source has carried them where they need to go. I've been in conversation in the past two weeks with three or four men around the country that are looking at doing some different things in their spiritual processes and in their community activism. I am honored that they feel like they can reach out to me, run it past me, ask my thoughts, and then hear what I have to say and take it to heart or not as they see fit. Because I'm not the answer man. I don't know everything. I'm as prone to error as anybody else. And I want to be clear about that, especially as a pastor. I apologize when I'm wrong. I say, oops, I try to make amends because historically that is not what pastors do. And so I want to be transparent about my fallibility and about my brilliance, both and. And so, yes, people have really, I don't know if they followed me, but they've picked up the breadcrumbs that I dropped and they forged their own path. And I couldn't be more grateful and happy for them. I just want to thank you for joining us on this conversation today and for the power of your example. And I think that in addition to you saying that other people are a divine energy, I'm sure that everyone listening would say the same about you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. My honor and my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. That was Reverend... Lewis Mitchell. Hey, y'all. I'm Aaron Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm so glad to be joined by national community leader, healer, and interfaith minister, Reverend Valerie Spencer. Reverend Spencer's journey to becoming a leading LGBTQ public health advocate began at the Unity Fellowship Church in Los Angeles, where she worked at the Minority AIDS Project for a decade. Since then, she's spoken at many national conferences and consulted with the federal government, universities, health departments, and community-based organizations across the country. Brevin Spencer is also the founder and director of Sacred Vision at the Holistic Empower Institute, an organization that centers LGBTQ community health and healing from a social, cultural, and spiritual basis. Among other honors, she has been recognized by the California Legislative LGBTQ Caucus as a state and national leader in the movement for LGBTQ plus political and social freedom. Brevin Spencer, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm wondering if you can tell us what your earliest memory is of you having faith. Well, now, then that causes a separation. There's a difference between, for me at least, the ritual of being in church. You know, I'm a Black girl, a Black kid, and so I was not raised in church, I must confess. My mother was not very churchy, but I liked to go because it was fun. There was music, there was shouting, there was dancing, there was laughter, there was singing. Uh, But it wasn't until the church put me out when I was around 19, and then I came back in my mid-20s, that suddenly I found this thing called faith. I saw myself and God being one. I saw myself in God. I saw God in me. And that completely contradicted the tapes that I had been taught, that I was a reprobate mind, that I was an abomination, you know, all all of the things that removed that. And suddenly I had a backbone in spirituality. I had a backbone in God. I knew who I was in God. And that became, you know, thanks to my being a part of the Unity Fellowship Church of Christ movement in the early to mid-90s is when I began the old tapes erased. And suddenly I found myself being a woman of faith, a woman who did believe in a power that was higher, greater, and grander than myself. Yet that power was some total and in nature who I was, that I was not across the street from God, that God was nearer than my neck vein, nearer than my hands and feet. And so I would say in my early 20s is where I truly found faith. Can you talk a little bit about what that period of isolation was like for you? I would assume that that you were asked to leave due to some combination of perceived sexual orientation and or gender identity. And that period of separation is one that a lot of people in our community experience. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you? Well, it all happened because I had fluttered through of various different kinds of churches, right? And so I had landed at a very staunch conservative church. And there were a couple of folks up in there that I knew were of the rainbow derivation, right? Including the pastor. (laughs) And so I slipped this boy a note that asked him in a slang way, are you gay? Now, I already knew that he was gay. And today we're great friends and we laugh about it. You know, we're both old. But he took that note out and went and showed that to clergy as service was going on. Of course, my best friend was with me at the time who said to me, they're going to kick your butt. And sure enough, they came and tapped me on my shoulder and said, can you step out? And basically, uh, the pastor said to me, you know, many things, but basically don't come back. Don't come back. You're way too feminine. Don't come back. You're never going to change. Don't come back. We've tried everything. They even tried to buy me a whole new wardrobe. (laughs) And I took it and scarved it up and cut it up and and queened it up and made it lovely, right? But he was right. I was never going to change. I was never meant to change because my nature was beautiful, right? And so it wasn't that I was being rebellious against God or God's teaching. It was that the lesson plan, the curriculum was askewed and it had not evolved yet to include me and the beauty of me. When I left, when they put me out, I thought, okay, God, how chicken shit is this, right? I'm doing all of this stuff to change. I'm trying to be as butch as I can. 
walk around here speaking in tongues on the bus, doing all of this stuff to try to be what they say that I am supposed to be. And yet it's not working. So I tell you what I'm going to do. Since I'm going to hell, I'm going to enjoy myself. That was my outlook, that if I'm going to hell, you know, if I'm meant to go to hell, then I'm just going to go and I'm going to live. I'm going to have a lovely time. And I would invite the Jehovah's Witnesses in and sort of, you know, wrestle them down with theology and conversations and debates. And and I just lived my life. It wasn't a very lonely or an isolating time, but it was a time looking back that I felt that I did not have God. What, as a person who is a theologian herself and a reverend, what are your reflections on people who weaponize religion against trans people, and specifically within the context of Black History Month, the Black church, which increasingly is being seen as a new battlefront for Christian nationalists to begin to weaponize specifically the Black church against trans people. And as a person who know, actually knows, what do you think when you see this? Because you've also experienced it personally. I have, and I do see it, and I do hear it. But for me, it's an old tactic that works. It's highly effective and meaning, right? When the offering buckets get low, let's attack the trans people. Hmm. When the building fund needs to be erected, let's attack the trans people. When a president comes in and makes us promises, if we look back historically, we know that those promises won't be kept. But when a candidate comes in and makes us promises, then let's pull out the old weapon of attacking the trans people. It's very effective. My challenge is with the Christians. (laughs) My challenge is with the Christians. I'm inviting you to get angry. I'm inviting you to get fed up that our precious and beloved God is pimped in this way, is used in this way. I'm inviting the Christians to apply the critical thinking that I know that they have, right? I know that they have to say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe there's another thought. Do we know anybody trans? Have we talked to anybody trans? What about trans people of faith? Do they exist? Right. I think that at a certain point, though, that some of these individuals really can't be logic or reasoned with, right? It's sort of like a psychology all on its own. As for the tactic itself, it's familiar. It's always used. It doesn't move us toward evolution. But the only thing that has changed about that old narrative is that we have more trans people of faith who know theology and are prepared to language it and give word to it than ever before. So we have a response. You know, normally it was just be like the church would just walk up to a community and throw trash in the streets and and then just kind of leave it there. You know, throw these anti-trans, throw these anti-queer messages, anti-women messages, even Black folks throwing anti-Black messages just sort of into the street and it was just left there. Well, now we have people on deck that can say, hey, you've put trash in our streets. We have trans people on board that are theologians of every stripe 
that can speak truth to power and truth to this myopic and skewed narrative of faith. You know, we overlook one thing, if I may be biblical for just a moment, and I'm not biblical a lot. The Bible says in Galatians that in the latter days, I will pour out my spirit unto all flesh. Now, the prerequisite of that wasn't written. I don't know why people think that they have to write the prerequisite that says only the straight, only the non-trans, only the cisgender people get to be. That's not what the book says. If we want to be literal for a moment, everybody gets to participate, speaking metaphorically, everybody gets to participate in this wonderful dynamic energy that we call the isness of God. Everybody gets to have some of it. So... It's an old strategy. It's highly effective for those people that it was going to be highly effective with overall. I'm trusting American people a little bit more because we've had a little bit more visibility, which means we've had a little bit more conversation and hopefully a little bit more heart-to-heart connection, that these messages just won't fall and then take root, that there'll be some critical thinking, some logic behind them in some regard. As a person who has been ministering to LGBTQ people for a really long time in various forms as you've laid out for us, what conversations have you had with people that have been the most effective and impactful in helping them undo the harm that may have been caused by religious exclusion or persecution? What are the things that resonate with people who come to you with all sorts of scars and hurt and are looking to you for guidance with a spiritual lens? Well, first of all, not only am I a minister, I'm a psychotherapist, right? And so, and I really do view them both as hand in hand because I work in intimate partner violence. And if we look at the cycle of domestic abuse, just for an example, we discover that these are people that have been exposed to blaming of themselves, that people that have been responsible, held responsible for their very own abuse, right? So their decision-making skills are not clear. Their self-esteem is fuzzy and foggy. They need exposure. So what I try to do is link people up with people, right? You need to see queer people happy. You need to see queer people worshiping. You need to see God really touching. We're not playing church work having church, there is a difference, right? If church is your thing, but you need to see people practicing. You need to see people connected. You need to see people happy, right? The narrative is not true that queer people, that trans people cannot be in and of God and cannot be successful and happy. So I like to link folks up with folks, right? The other thing that I find it very helpful is that, as I was saying before, getting ready to say, link people up with some psychotherapy. They need some therapy. They need some group. They need to process. And sometimes what they really just want to hear is a sense of justification, right? They've been traumatized by these anti-queer, anti-trans messages. It's almost like, it. well, it is in many cases, equivalent to complex PTSD. And depending on the effect that it has had, I might even diagnose complex PTSD because we hear these messages 
over and over again. The other thing that I try to do is make the approach to spirituality very common and very approachable. You know, there is the very public Valerie Spencer, very public Reverend Valerie Spencer, that when I pray publicly, it's a particular way. There's a bit of performance, right, to it, depending on what congregation you're in front of, if you're doing a wedding. But then there's my private relationship with my higher power, my private relationship with spirit. And that prayer sounds a whole lot different, right? Uh, It's a personal relationship. And so I also expose people to not just the joys that I have found by being a woman of faith, but also the struggles that me and God have had, right? That I've had with God, the fistfights that we have had, the divorce that almost became final, between myself and God, the reconciliation that we had. You know, God and I went through a period where, okay, look, don't say nothing to me. Just sleep on the couch. Don't say nothing to me. And I was close to becoming an atheist because I had truly, truly, truly lost my faith, right? And it took work like any good relationship. It took work and effort. And now I can say, I do believe in God. I do believe in something grander and higher than myself. But I also believe that that something is looking to hook me up always. My God likes me. What do the young people say? My God Fs with me, right? I love that. Meaning that my God knows me and hooks me up in ways that I need. I don't always have to conform to it. It knows me and says, you know what? I'm going to wrap myself around you. My God is a friendly God with me. My God is a compassionate. They go, my girl, they go, Val, she done lost the car keys again. Let me hook her up. You know, my God loves me. We get down like that, right? And so that's the kind of relationship, the shoulds and should not relationships. I don't even think they're highly effective anymore. I think they move, the thy shall not relationships move us further and further from an intimate relationship with a higher power and move us into self-judgment and self-blame. I went to a church, an allegedly gay affirming church, and I was struck because the, the gay minister, the primary focus of his sermon was I was sexually tempted. But you know what? I didn't do it. You know, I really wanted to do it, y'all, but I didn't do it. And I kept thinking to myself, what, well, are you in a relationship or something? Was the other person in a committed relationship? Why didn't you just go and have sex? What is it about your edict and your principle that tells you that your sex, right? So some of us have gotten past the anti-gay, anti-queer messages, but the deep roots of them, that who I am is bad and wrong, some of that still remains. So I recommend therapy, exposure, prayer, and prayer that is common, prayer that is conversational. I recommend people jump back into it. And the good thing about those recommendations is typically, although people have been abused by spirituality, they still have that pull. As a person who's experienced this darkness, as you've just kind of taken us through this wrestling with God and found your way back to religion, I'm wondering what religion, as you understand it, teaches us about how to move through darkness in really dark times. As you mentioned You just lost your mother fairly recently and are mourning her. We also lost recently Cecilia Gentili, who's 
a person for whom not having her around is unimaginable for large parts of our community and sparks tremendous grief. And of course, the grief that people are still having with them as a result of COVID, over a million people died, and not to mention seeing loss every night through images of the current war in the Middle East, now one big war. So I'm wondering, what do you counsel as insights around how to move through dark times informed by what you've learned? Well, now this is where we go a little metaphysical, right? This is where we go into the Eastern part of our faith. We got to look at stuff before we call it bad. Right? We got to look at stuff before we label it as bad or suffering, right? Some of it may be veiled in that, but actually has a great deal of, of vitamin and benefit for us. And so I invite people to ask themselves, because the principle says that all things work together for the good of those who believe and are called according to its purpose. Now, everybody is called according to its purpose. Everybody's got a calling of some kind. So that means the good is working for all of humanity. My challenge is to take this rotten situation and lift it up to be transformed so that I can then see the good. It's a choice. I'm choosing for this awful thing. I'm choosing for this abuse to be transformed so that I may use it as fuel. It's a choice. The releasing of it, the choosing to see good of it. And it is a practice. Sometimes it's a practice that we have to continually come back to. However, for the things that we cannot, simply cannot reframe in any way because they are just too wicked and vicious to do so, this is where God becomes a God of comfort, right? This is where God becomes a God of comfort and a God of comfort that shows up in a myriad of ways. You're absolutely right. My mother became an ancestor on September 19th of last year. And it was something that I had prepared for for many, many years. And the closer it came, I reached a certain point where I thought, no, no, she's not going nowhere because she's been doing like this for a while. But once I saw it coming, look sharp, sis, this is it, right? This is it. And she let me know in the language that we speak as mother and as mother and daughter, she let me know. I'm on my way, right? I don't want no more water. I don't want no more water. I want nothing. I want you to give me a few feet. She didn't want me hovering over her. So I didn't, right? I see all of that is good. I see all of it is good. And strangers reached out to me. Strangers. People that I don't know and a couple of folk I don't like and I still want to know, how did you get my contact information? People reached out to me to lift me up. My community simply buoyed me for about a month, right? Almost put food in my mouth, put money in my pocket, paid for things. So God shows up as comfort in ways that we found us if we would simply would allow that. I was very clear with God. God, I need help. 
I'm not going to try to play like I'm strong. I'm crying inside of the refrigerator. I need help. And God sent me help, right? God sent me help. I want to encourage my people, if you are listening to that this message, and if you are going through a season of hurt and pain, hear what I called it. I called it a season. It is not your forever. And if you need support, reach out for support right? And and keep reaching until you get the support that's a solid arm to lean on, right? Sometimes you need a solid arm, not a lily-livered arm, but a solid arm to lean on. Keep reaching out until you get that and allow yourself that, allow yourself that. But know this, the queer life is a lovely life. The trans life is a lovely life, despite there being some challenges and experiences, The human experience in itself is varied and different, right? But you're going to have a wonderful life if you put your good foot in having that wonderful, wonderful life. Things are not all bleak for us as trans people. Things are beautiful for us as trans people. But like all human experience, we have our darkness to navigate. And so this is really the reason why I started my own nonprofit organization and put my own vision into the world because you're absolutely right. People do come to me with their suffering. People do come to me with their challenge. And some of that challenge is rooted in them needing to have some empowerment strategies that are just more than a four-hour talk that you walk away with or certificate. They needed some soul-shifting Work And that's why I started Holistic Empowerment Institute. And at Holistic Empowerment Institute, we believe in what I call intentional spiritual integration, ethno-cultural healing practices, evidence-based practices within mental health, traditional healing practices, mindfulness techniques, things from all over the world that have been fused to mental health. So I believe that spirituality can be directed unto where it is sent. So in this case, we direct spirituality directly into mental health and healing. We have courses that focuses on depression and spiritual integration. We have our latest and greatest signature piece that I developed is a love letter to uh, some of the greatest women I've ever known, and that's trans women. And it's called the Masterclass. I started Masterclass because I'm a master, no shame, (laughs) because I'm a master, I'm a leader, done it for a long time. But I didn't want just the women to have those sort of technical business skills. I had an underlying agenda that if I could expose them to a bit of collegiate learning, also give them some person-centered, whole person lessonry around leadership and give them some of that business acumen all in one, uh, that it would make a great program. And from that masterclass, we have over six trans-specific nonprofit organizations from our previous masterclass leaders who are now nonprofit leadership themselves. And as we go into the coming year, we'll be having our virtual summer series that is a virtual sort of Facebook Live kind of YouTube event. And we're also really looking for funding so that we can have healing symposiums across the country. So visit us again at beholistic.org. Lastly, I'm wondering if you have ever been in a room full of theologians who 
would look at what you're doing at HEI and you personally as wrong, if you've ever been in a room with them and what you've said to them? Well, first of all, let's acknowledge the question. I don't see them as having the power that other people see. <laughs> right. So I'm not talking to you directly because I'm not talking to you. Right. You're, you're not my people. And so for you to name the work that I do as bad or wrong, that never comes to my face. And, and I must also say that I get a bit of passling privilege. So I have to sort of out myself in the room and say, yeah, I'm up in here. So stop the conversation. And the conversation usually does stop. I will say that it turns to more of a help me understand piece. Right. But my help me understand comes with a fee, if I may be very honest. And I'm not going to give you my insight and wisdom, knowing very well that you're going to morph it into a skewed sermonology against my people's come Sunday morning. So I encourage those ministers to get some legitimate education. I can feel when there's an authentic uh, sort of need to know or wanting to know. I can feel that out. But if I may be very honest, what I get most from being in a room full of clergy, after it is over, I get the clergy who confess to who they really are. I get the clergy who confess to the experiences that they have. And the reason why I ask for Christians to get angry and to start questioning is because your pastors tell me about their experiences <laughs> when they feel very safe. Sometimes they don't feel very safe, but it is so present on them. They got to get it out. I remember being at the Bomb and Gilead event that they have every year for the Black Church on AIDS. I couldn't get through the lobby hardly because people thought that ministers were talking to me about understanding transgenderism. No, they were confessing. <laughs> they were confessing. So I get a lot of, well, you know, I, I, I've had this experience or, you know, I've had these kind of feelings. And I do the same thing that I do for my people, which is draw them back into themselves, point out how much God loves them. And then I do check them on their messages. And they do confess to me that they know what is right. They know what they've been taught in seminary. Most of those ministers, especially the Black ones, hello, have been with trans women. Plenty, right? They don't even believe those messages. But they're highly, highly effective in drawing in and securing revenue, which is so unfair. And I check them on it. You know, I check them on it. I let them know that they are damaging people. They are making our challenge even more difficult to navigate because of these messages. I think the revenue is more important, if I may be very honest. The revenue and the importance that they feel that I've said these things, that I preach this thing, that I have title and all those things. I think those things bleed more important than did your sermon lead to somebody's death. We can paint that picture for them of how your sermon actually contributed to the death of a trans person. I can connect your sermon to the death of that young lady in Texas. I can connect it. But will that make you stop with sufficient force, right? Or is your building fund more important, your revenue more important, your sense of ego more important? And for many times, unfortunately, the ego wins out. The ego wins. 
They know that stuff is wrong, right? They know. Well, talk about a bombshell. <laughs> that was a bombshell. I mean, to you, you're like, oh, this, this, is, this is just a fact. But I think so many people listening will be like, wow. Now, if we were on a patio with a cocktail in our hand and it was about one o'clock in the morning, I could tell you stories. Well, I think that everything that you have said is so vital for people to understand and be able to contextualize the weaponization of religion against our community, the ways that people can reclaim that, and all the ways that you have detailed. And thirdly, your overall call that essentially God knows us and God is love. So thank you so much for walking the walk and for everything that you have done for our community and everything you will continue to do for our community in the way that your life's purpose is continuing to unfold. Thank you so much. Thank you. If I may just say something briefly to the people, don't let nobody take your God from you. Don't let any message, any creed, any edict, any religion, any position, any political climate, that's your God, okay? That's your God. Okay, that's the, it's closer than your husband or your wife or your partner. That's your God. Don't let nobody take roll up on you and just take your God. Struggle with it. Tussle with it if you must. But keep your God. It's very useful. It's very effective. Thank you so much. That's your God. And that was Reverend Valerie Spencer. Thank you for joining me on the Transmash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. If you like what you heard, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. You can listen to Translash wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on the web, translash.org, to sign up for our weekly newsletter. Follow us on X and Instagram at Translash Media. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends. The Translash podcast is produced by Translash Media. The Translash team includes Oliver Ash Klein and Aubrey Calloway. Xander Adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer. Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer and digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. So here's an unanticipated thing that I'm looking forward to, which is the rest of Black History Month. I know that that sounds possibly curious, but one of the things that I love about social media are the number of scholars and experts who you may not normally have access to because they're at the academy or a different part of the country who use these platforms to tell us things about people that we didn't know. Um, Like I learned from one uh, that uh, the golf tee that is used on golf courses was actually invented by a Black man, for example. So things like that I I love. And um, it just continues to enrich in our idea of who people are and what the possibilities are. So I'm looking forward to informative Black history social media posts um, every now and again when it's not trying to shadow ban us or, you know, help people figure out how to take away our rights, social media can be a good thing. And this is one of them.